John 13, 1 through 11. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, you do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but do not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Please pray with me. Good morning. How are we? Okay. I know exams are coming, and I know Alabama destroyed the Gators yesterday. It's okay. All right. But guys, it's 21 days until Christmas, right? Can you name in about that? Heck yeah, right? Okay, so here we go. We, uh, we've got three weeks left, including this morning, in our grand narrative series. Uh, it's what we've been doing this entire uh, semester into the fall. And, and what we've been doing over the course of the fall is kind of working through this idea of not treating the Bible in individual chunks, but viewing it as a whole. Right? And seeing the, the flow of the story of what God is trying to show us throughout Scripture. And so, so we see you know, this flow of creation, fall, redemption, and what God is doing to redeem his people and bring them back to him. And then we get to the point where we see what Christ has done and then future glory and what God is going to do in Jesus' return to earth. Okay? And, so, and so where we are this morning... In light of this is we've seen the New Testament and the Old Testament now at this point. We've been in both um, sections of the Bible. And what we've seen over and over again is this consistent theme of God's faithfulness in the midst of human depravity and disaster. We have a tendency to view the Old Testament 
and people in the New Testament, and these men and women, and we say, well, they're, they're a huge hero. They're great, you know, like, David is awesome. I love David. I love hearing stories about David, or, or we hear stories about Jonah, or about Paul, or about Peter and the disciples. And what we miss over and over again is what's really driving the message of Scripture is not the men and women that are talked about in the story, but the faithfulness of God during different moments in those men and women's lives. And seeing God's faithfulness to ultimately come through on his promise to Abraham to save his people, his creation, the ones that he loves, okay? And so as we're rounding into the final kind of lapse of um, this series— the story we're going to look at this morning is going to kind of set up next week, which is going to be the Easter story. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about um, what happens when Jesus comes back. Right? It's kind of funny, right? We're going to be talking about eschatology heading into uh, Christmas. And, and what's interesting is at this time of year, most churches are talking about Advent. And Advent is a, a season where the church kind of remembers the arrival of Jesus, right? And Advent is really just the arrival of, a, of an important person, and obviously Jesus was that. And so most churches are talking about that, but we talked about that a few weeks ago. We're going to be more focusing on the end of Jesus's life and time on earth so that we can figure out less about, hey, what happened and why did it happen? And focusing in on why Jesus came and why it's so important that on December 25th, as we celebrate Christmas this year, we don't miss the reason why we're celebrating that day. Because one of the fascinating things to me is, did you ever think about the concept that you, that you are wrestling with the worship of two separate gods at Christmas time? The God of moralism and uh, consumerism and the God of the Bible. Right, you ever, like think about this for a second. How many of you guys grew up believing in Santa Claus? Okay, so like half half the room, right? And, I, and I, Jackie and I don't do that with our, our sons, and we're like, and not because we think like Santa's evil or anything like that, but he's based off Saint Nicholas, who's not Jesus, and so we don't really want to put him above the pedestal. Plus, there's multiple reasons why we kind of think Santa's got some issues, right? He he's kind of like God, but not really, right? Like you ever hear the song, right? Like he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. That's kind of weird if he's not the God of the universe. Right? And, you know, scientifically, to travel the speed and go down every single uh, child's chimney the way that um, Santa would, if you looked that up online, he would spontaneously combust because he'd be moving so quickly. Right? And so there's this idea that what we teach about Santa is really things that are connected with the character and nature of God, right? Omniscient, omnipresent, able to do all these different things. And the big piece that's missing from who Santa is, is the gospel, right? Everything that's tied to Santa is moralistic legalism without the grace and mercy and love that God bestows us in the real reason we celebrate Christmas, which is Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at Jesus's last night with his disciples, before he's arrested and taken away to be crucified. And I want you to guys to be thinking about this as we, as we read the story and as really as Stephen read it to us earlier. How many of you guys have been amazed by the selflessness of someone in your life? P ponder that for a moment and th think on that. 
Think, think about who that person is and some of the things that they've done in your life and how that has affected you. Like one person that pops into my mind immediately is my mother. You know, she put up with a bratty teenager, actually two of them, as much as I love my sister. Sorry, sis, you still were a bratty teenager, right? Not, maybe less so than me. My mom is constantly serving people, cleaning people, cleaning for people. Not cleaning people, that'd be kind of weird, right? Clean, cleaning for people. My, my mom comes down and it, it's kind of cracks me up because my mom has this way of doing dishes. And when she comes down here, she kind of interrupts Jackie's flow of how we do dishes. And I'm like, well, you know, she's doing our dishes for us. And Jackie's like, but I don't want them done that way. And I'm like, she's serving us. I mean, I don't have to do the dishes right now. I, I'm okay with it, right? This is this interesting dichotomy. My mom's always looking for these opportunities to serve people. I mean, God bless her heart. The woman even tries to cook, even though she is one of the five worst cooks on the planet. She has burned every batch of cookies she has ever made. I promise you that, okay? But because she loves people and serves them well, right, my mom is so selfless. She's always looking for opportunities to serve people. And one of the great things about being married and having kids is I've gotten to see this kind of grow and develop in my wife. Right, just a few weeks ago, we were getting ready to leave for Virginia. As you guys know, we were gone for two weeks. And the morning when we're getting ready to leave, it's kind of hectic in the house. I mean, I have a 22-month-old who's talking and like starting to try to talk and exercise his will and is getting into everything. So if you pack something, he takes 12 things out of the suitcase. Okay? And so we're trying to pack and get out the door so that we can make our flight. And we're sitting there, and, and Gideon, some of you guys know Gideon, you know, the five-year-old who's got the brain of a 30-year-old. And he's sitting there, and he's like super focused in on something, and he starts asking me for help. And what do I do as his dad? I'm like, I'm busy right now, but I don't have time for this. Figure it out. Now, Jackie, who's 20 times busier than me, right, steps aside, sits down with him, gets on eye level with him, and says, you know, how can I help you? Let's work through this, right? Like, my wife is exuding that sort of selflessness to our children all the time, and it drives me and pushes me and presses back on me to say, whoa, whoa, whoa slow down. Right? Remember that your call in life is to serve right, your children because God has given you them to steward. And so what we're going to see this morning is the account of what John remembers from Jesus' last night with his disciples is all centered around this idea of Jesus serving his disciples and what he's trying to teach them in the midst of that service. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 13. We're going to be working through the first 11 verses there, and we'll actually finish up in the book of Mark today. But we're going to work through those first 11 verses in the book of John. Look at verse 1 with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So I want to stop there because there's a lot of things being communicated by John in that verse that we need to understand so that we understand the entire context of where this is going on in the timeline of Jesus' life and ministry and why it's such a big deal, okay? So the first thing he says there is that they're sitting down before the feast of the Passover. And so if you didn't grow up Jewish, you may or may not know what the feast of Passover is, okay? Every year, sometime in, in about early spring, the Jewish people would get together to celebrate this feast called Passover. And what they were doing is remembering back to the time when 
God was placing the plagues on the nation of Egypt and Israel was in slavery to Egypt. And what had happened with this final plague is that God had promised the firstborn son of every single person in the nation of Egypt would be killed during the night unless a lamb was slain and the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts of the house. And so what ended up happening is the Israelites followed through on God's command, did what he asked. And what happened is, is that, that the angel of death passed over their homes and rescued them and saved the sons. And so Moses kind of instituted this, this celebration yearly saying, okay, what I want us to do is every year we're going to celebrate a Passover meal remembering what God did for us and how he delivered us from Egypt. And so here you are, right, a couple hundred years later, and by a couple hundred, I mean closer to a thousand years later, out, outside of when this happened historically in the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel's gathering together to celebrate this particular celebration and meal. And what's interesting is God is not subtle in the way that he does things. Right? It's not at all subtle that in just a couple of days' time, Jesus is going to be crucified before the nation of Israel, right? In the same way that the lamb during Passover rescued the firstborn sons from the, from the angel of death in Egypt, right? God is giving his own son as a sacrifice in just a few days that he's going to be the new Passover lamb. It's not some coincidence that all of a sudden, right, God's like, well, I think it might just be a good time of year to send Jesus to go ahead and die for the sins of the whole world. No, he's very, very, very concerned about connecting the theology of Jesus's life to the practice of his life and the theology of the nation of Israel. And so they're celebrating this Passover meal, and this is the last time that Jesus is going to be with his disciples, okay? And so it says that he knows the hour uh, is about to come for him to depart this world and return to the Father. And what John's doing there is he's reminding the readers, us, as we're reading the gospel, hey, Jesus once reigned in heaven with the Father and actually came to our side. Let's not forget that. As we've been talking about his ministry and all that he's done throughout his life at this point, Jesus' original place was in the throne room in the kingdom of heaven, ruling and reigning with the Father. And that he surrendered that to come down to our side and put on human flesh as a baby in a manger, growing up, dealing with the sins of those around him, yet living a perfect life and doing ministry for the last three years of his life. So he's harking back on this and reminding us, look, remember who we're talking about here, right? This is, this is the Son of God, right? He's, he's about to return to where he belongs. He's not where he belongs right now. He's about to return to where he belongs because right now he's on a rescue mission doing this. He's not a baby, right? He's not just some rabbi. He's the Son of God whose throne room is in heaven. And then the last thing John mentions is that he loved his own. Because he's sitting down for one last meal with the men he loved and did ministry with. So he's, he's reminded us of three things. This is a super important time in Israel's life every year, theologically. Jesus, the Son of God, is about to return to the Father. And the, one of the last things he's going to do is sit down and share the Passover meal with his disciples. That's the setting that we have here. Okay, and so we get to verses 2 through 4 and look, look at what happens. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Okay, so in light of verse 1, it's the last meal. It's with the people he loves. Imagine yourself knowing that you're getting ready to die and you're getting ready to have the last meal with people that you love. What would that meal probably look like? Maybe spending some time discussing with them how much you care for them, remembering back on fond memories that you've had, um, maybe giving some instructions on what you hope happens after you leave. Right? There'd probably be those types of discussions at the dinner table if you knew your life was about to come to an end. Okay? And so Jesus, as John says here, knows what's about to happen to him. Right? He, he knows what he's going to be facing. Right? Remember in Matthew, he even predicted it. And what he does is he, it says that John says that he grabbed a towel and a basin. Right? It seems kind of like pointless. Like, okay, what? You know, why, what, is, what is he doing? What's going on here? You know, like, wouldn't we have expected, if this is one of Jesus' last times with the disciples, to either hear him do some great teaching or have some great sermon illustration for them to talk about what they're supposed to do after he's gone? Um, maybe he sits down and opens Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book and starts working through some of that with them. You know, like there's so many different things that you would expect Jesus to do here, and he is going to teach, but not in the way that you would expect him to. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So let me give you guys a little cultural context of what's going on here. Okay, Jesus pours this water into the ba basin and begins wa washing the feet of his disciples. Okay, first of all, that typically happened the moment anyone came into a room after a day's travel. Okay, second of all, during this time period, you know, people didn't have these sweet puma kicks like I have on up here. I don't know if you guys can see them. Um, they're dirty. They smell really bad. They're nasty. I'm, I put some new balances on my Christmas list, hoping to get them. Um, but, right, the reality is is they walked around in sandals, sandals or barefoot. And so, now, if you walked everywhere you went, because there weren't cars, mopeds, motorized scooters, uh, rollerblades, razor scooters, whatever people are riding around on nowadays, right, hovercrafts, right, because they didn't have these things, people walked everywhere. So imagine what people's feet were like in first century Israel. Nasty and stinking, Okay. On top of that, right, you shared the same roads that you walked on with uh, livestock. And so, have any of you guys ever seen a parade? Okay, ever see like the horses or the elephants in the parade? Do they hold going to the bathroom during the parade? Or does someone always have that really awesome job of following behind them in an ATV with like a big old trash can and a big shovel? Right, kind of nasty, okay? And what, they, what they're doing is they're cleaning up after the animals because animals just go to the bathroom wherever they have to go to the bathroom. Okay, well, that didn't really happen then. And so, you know, there was nasty stuff all over the road if you were walking on the road. And so people's feet were disgusting in first century Israel. 
And so culturally what you would do is you would, at the end of the day, you would come into your house and you would you know, take off your sandals or whatever and you would sit down and you would have a servant wash your feet for you. And this job was reserved for the lowliest of low in the class system of Israel. It was only designated to non-Jewish slaves during this particular time period. And here you have the proclaimed Messiah and King of the nation of Israel sitting down and beginning to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, guys, I've had some pretty gross jobs in my life, okay? I, I, in high school, I worked for Chick-fil-A, okay? And I'm not trying to ruin anyone's love for, the, for Chick-fil-A. I still eat there, okay? But they cook their food in fryers, and those things are nasty. And when you start dumping those things out, guess where all that stuff goes? It goes into this little contraption called a grease trap, and it kind of like ends up, after like about a month, being raw sewage, and like things get into it. And so if you're really, really fortunate to work the day that that has to be cleaned out, you might get the job where you have to open that up and start cleaning this raw sewage out, okay? That's like what I had to do at Chick-fil-A when I was working in high school doing something. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, right? He's dealing with nasty people's feet who have walked through, in reality, sewage most of their lives because of how gross the roads are. And so it's kind of shocking to the, to the disciples that Jesus would do something like this. Only servants and slaves did this, and yet the one that they've been calling their Messiah and King sits down and begins to wash their feet. And Peter, not surprising that it's him, because anytime you read the Gospels, if anyone ever speaks up and does something, it's always who? Peter. Right? Peter's like, Lord, you know, do you wash my feet? Basically rhetorically asking, whoa, whoa, whoa you need to stop. You're not doing this. I'm not going to allow you to do this. You're, you're not allowed to wash my feet. And this is where we get to the heart of the passage here. Jesus' response to Peter. Look what he says in verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you, were un- you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no Share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Jesus basically says to Peter, look, as is common with the disciples, you, you guys don't really understand what I'm doing right now. You don't understand the significance of why I'm washing your feet right now and why this is so important that I do this. And there are multiple examples of Jesus doing something throughout the Gospels and the disciples not understanding it. Remember back uh, in Matthew chapter 16 verse 4 when he's talking to the Pharisees and they demand a sign. Remember what he says? He says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And everyone's like, you know, what was he talking about? And he, what he was doing is he was comparing his death, burial, and resurrection to Jonah being swallowed by the fish and then being thrown back up on the land three days later. He's giving them a sign. He's cryptically speaking to them about something that's going to happen, yet they completely miss what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's going to be teaching them something in his actions and what he's doing, and yet the disciples are going to be missing the point. And so Peter in his typical style says, never, you'll never wash my feet. I'm your servant. You're, you're not my servant. You're my king. You'll never wash my feet. And so Jesus says, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
And this is important because it's, it's, it's not just because this is some gross job and they can't be Jesus' friend if they don't allow him to, to, to serve him. Jesus is actually illustrating a very, very important theological point to his disciples simply by washing their feet. See, the, if you remember anything about John the Baptist, John was preaching a message of repentance to the nation of Israel. And he was telling them, you know, repent of your sin, return to God in sorrow and wanting to be obedient towards him, and then come down here into the water and get baptized. And what baptism represented for, for Jews was the cleansing and forgiveness of sin by God. And so what Jesus is saying here to Peter right now is, look, if you do not allow me to wash you, you have no part of me. If you do not allow me to wash and forgive you of your sins, you have no place with me. You have no part with me. Something as simple as taking a basin and a towel and washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is communicating the full extent of what his death on the cross is going to secure for Peter and the other disciples. The forgiveness of their sins. But only his death can secure that. Only his resurrection can secure that. They need Jesus in order to be forgiven. And Peter needs to know that. Now I'm going to pause there for a second because there's going to be more to elaborate on this. But Peter responds. It's like he gets it, right? Sometimes Peter actually does get it. Very rarely in the scriptures, but sometimes he actually does. And he says, well, just wash all of me. If, if, if this is what's necessary for me to be with you for eternity, and worship, wash all of me. Don't just wash my feet. Every ounce, I'll do whatever you want. Just wash me. Because right? he loves the Lord so much. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Focus in on that line and look at this line. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. I'm going to try to unpack this and explain this to us because I think this is a pretty deep theological statement by Jesus that we kind of end up glossing over most of the time. Okay, so ask yourself this question here this morning, and hopefully everyone will have the same, the same answer, but am I a sinner? Do I do things wrong Mor morally? Do, uh, wh where do I stand? Okay, you know, the answer should be yes, all of us, including me up here this morning, right? All, all of us sin, all of us fall short of the standard that even most of the time we ourselves set over our lives on what is right and wrong, much less God's standard of what right and wrong is, okay? And so all of us kind of stand in the, in the same situation. God has declared what is right and good, and we have disobeyed and walked away and treasonously and rebelliously, rebelliously 
right, stood up and said, look, God, we, we know the way, we know what's best, we're going to do it our own way. That's what we're all staring down and looking at. And Jesus says there, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Okay, here's the translation of that statement. If you find yourself in me identifying with my death, burial, and resurrection, you are forgiven of sin. You don't need to wash. You don't need to wash the whole body. You're forgiven. But, look at what he says after that. Except for his feet, but is completely clean. Here is the reality if you are a Christian this morning. Okay? Many of us have this moment in our lives. Some, for some of you guys, it was age three. Some of you guys, it was six. Some of, you got, some of you guys, it was 13 at camp. And your parents sent you away, and you had this awesome time. And you, you heard the gospel, and you responded to Jesus. And you're like, yes, Jesus is my Savior. He died for my sins. I believe and trust in Him. And so what happened in that moment is that you were bathed and forgiven in this illustration. And yet Jesus says you need to be cleaned continuously on your feet. Okay, that seems to spit in the face, though, of most of our understanding of Scripture and understanding of eternal security. Here is what Jesus is saying, though, because most of us have an insufficient view of the gospel and the way the gospel works. The gospel is not just an entry point into life as a Christian, but is the fuel to carry you out the rest of your days as you walk on this earth. A lot of us, we, we went to camp or whatever else, and we prayed the sinner's prayer or whatever it is. You know, God, I'm a sinner. Um, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. Please forgive me. I desire to change. I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life. And we, we, say, we say all those things. We believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. And we have this moment. It's like, aha, okay, saved. How many of you continue to sin after you prayed a prayer or realized that? Yep. Some people are honest enough to raise their hands. The rest of you just are dishonest, and that, you need to raise your hand right now. Amen. Here's the reality. That over and over and over again, you will continue to fall short of God's standard, which is perfection, even when you find yourself in Christ. The same way that if someone in first century Israel went into their house, took a bath, and walked back down the street and came back in, their feet were nasty. And here's what Jesus is saying. That we cannot view the gospel, what Christ has done for us on the cross, as just the entry point. Because what ends up happening is we walk through life doing one of two things. We either cheapen the cross and believe in this weird for form of cheap grace or hyper grace where God just forgives everything and I can just live however I want and there's no demanding of repentance which what is what God calls of us as we respond to him. Or we err to the complete other side where we walk in legalism and all we ever are focused on is our little world about how we're living each and every day and we don't allow God's grace and mercy to impact us on any level whatsoever. And Jesus says, no, there is a better way. 
Jesus is saying that his death will forgive them for sin once and for all, but they will also need the daily cleansing of their sins the same way that you and I need washed. Meaning there is a process and a spiritual discipline to walking with Jesus where we are consistently by prayer and confession laying our sins before the Lord and allowing him to wash and clean us every day. Which means you need to understand the gospel and be running back to it every single day of your life. That the gospel didn't just save you at age six. It didn't just save you at age 20 or 21 when you were partying and sleeping around and doing whatever. That the gospel saves you when you have a poor attitude at work. That the gospel continues to be the drive when you're a bad husband or a bad father or a bad wife or a bad mother or a bad grandparent or a bad friend, a bad neighbor. That in the midst of all those things, your need for the daily washing and forgiveness of the Lord is always there. Right? One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the Gospel-Centered Life book. Some of you guys have walked through that with us with Bob Thurman. Will you throw that up there on the board for me? Um, we got a little chart here, and I was going to just try to explain it, but hopefully the chart will actually do this. Um, while they're trying to get that sorted out and put that up there, let me explain what Bob Thurman says is the reality of what is happening. Okay? He kind of draws this chart, and there's this starting point. And there's one arrow pointing up, and there's one arrow pointing down. So you guys can see this up there, okay? And at that moment of conversion, what he's talking about is that moment where when you realize Jesus really did die for your sins. You're saved and forgiven. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. You've been bathed, as Jesus says in his example here, to Peter. And yet what happens over the course of time as a Christian is if you are walking with the Lord, two things will be true of you you are going to have a deeper knowledge of God's holiness. The longer I've been a Christian, the more amazed I am by God. He created the universe. Just like seriously sit and ponder that for a moment. The universe. Our God spoke that into existence. Not only did he speak that into his existence, but he knows everything, right? That's why like, I remember every time I try to explain the Trinity to someone, right, especially you college students, you guys are so smart at the University of Florida, and we start talking about the Trinity, you're like, ah! And so, so then we start, like, as human beings, we start coming up with these different, like, ways to describe the Trinity, and most of them are heretical. And here's what the Bible teaches. God is three in one. He's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but God the Father is not the Son. God the Son is not the Father. God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. That all three persons exist, and yet they are one triune God. Now, wrap your mind around that for a minute. How does that work? I don't know. You want to know why? Because he created me. He's probably smarter than I am. Do you ever stop and think for a second? Maybe we don't need to know everything. Maybe we don't need to know everything because we can't know everything. He's God. I, I, for one, find great solace in the fact that God is bigger than I am. And that his ways are not my ways. 
and that my understanding of him cannot be fully comprehended. And that sometimes I sit back and I can have a great biblical understanding of a doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity and be like, how the freaking heck does this work? All right, God, this is who you are. I don't understand it. But then again, I'm five, six and a buck 50. What do I know? And so the longer I've been walking with Jesus, the deeper and deeper my knowledge and understanding of who God is and who his holiness is grows. And yet, as I continue to walk with the Lord, the deeper and deeper my understanding of my own sinfulness grows. See, when I first became a follower of Jesus, it was kind of like, well, I'm sinning and partying and I'm addicted to pornography. Well, those were just symptoms of much, much deeper issues in my own heart. A worship and love of self above all else. They just manifested themselves in different ways. And so what happened is, is the layers started getting peel peeled back. Right? God gave me victory and freedom over those sins. And guess what? They started manifesting themselves in other ways. In my relationships with other people, in the way that I treated my coworkers or my employees or my boss. They started cropping up in different places. And guess what? It's because the Lord's saying, well, let's just keep peeling back that onion because the real problem is the disease of your heart and your love of self and the idolatry of yourself. And so the more and more I became aware of my own sinfulness. And guess what connects those two things together and continues to drive you forward? The cross. That your need to daily be reminded of God's great love for you in Christ is what drives the Christian to obedience, to joy, to knowledge, to worship, and to mission. That the gospel is not just the entry point at conversion, but it's the fuel that allows you and I to continue to grow as believers. And what should happen is most people, they become a believer and then they run on emotion for so long and then their emotion runs out and they're like, I just don't really feel it anymore. There's been a disconnect somewhere there to understanding how the gospel applies to your life. And here's the reality. Very few of us look like that on a daily basis. See, most of the time, one of uh, what we tend to do is actually diminish one of those two things. We either try to diminish the holiness of God and make it something that we can palpably understand and handle, or we try to minimize our own sin, right? Bob Thume says it's this, that if we're trying to diminish God's holiness, hey, God's not really as holy as he claims to be in the scriptures— then what we end up doing is we start trying to perform in our life. And when we start living, what we do is we think, well, I can live up to God's standard. And that, that pushes us to legalism. Because what ends up happening is you say, well, I can meet God's standard. Right? Now, that I, now that I'm a Christian and I start reading God's word all the time, I can perform in such a way that I end up, I'm able to achieve, achieve and, and, and get to God's standard of holiness. The reality is, is none of us can. How can something that's imperfect be made perfect again unless something supernatural happens? Right? Some of you guys know Jake in this room. He uses a great illustration to explain this all the time. He says, if you need a 4.0 to get into the University of Florida and you get a B in gym your junior year, can you get into the University of Florida without something supernatural being done for you? By the way, none of that weighted grade nonsense. 
No. Right? Apart from something supernatural happening, nothing can happen. Something outside of the standard declaring you as okay. That's what happens in the gospel. You don't get to diminish the standards of the University of Florida to get into the school. The standards are still the standards. It's whether someone reaches down in spite of the standard and forgives and offers you to come across. The way that God does to you and I in the midst of our own sin. The other thing we do is we, we tend to diminish the reality of our own sin. And so what we end up doing is instead of trying to perform up to God's standard by making light of God's holiness, what we try to do instead is we pretend. Well, my sin's not really that bad, so I'll just pretend that everything's okay. And we walk around in a bubble, even amongst men and women in our Bible studies and church community who love us, and we're fake. And most of us use excuses. Well, everyone else is around me is fake or whatever else, but here's the reality. It's not the people that are around you that are sinning. It's you. You are in charge of your own sin. You are running your own life. The reason you're not honest and open is you don't have enough belief in the gospel to bridge that gap if you really know how bad you are. And here's the reality. He's better than you think he is. The cross is enough. That when Jesus died for sins, he died for them once and for all. And a daily renewal and cleansing of your sin is not just something that we pulled out of the air. It's something Jesus taught his disciples on the final night and dinner that he had with them. That you'll be bathed by my blood and my body poured out for you. And you will continually be forgiven if you're honest with yourselves and lay your sin at the foot of the cross and repent, believe, and obey. Jesus doesn't just free us for our own sake and glory. That's what many of us don't realize, right? The point of the cross is to push God's holiness and make less of us. That's the whole story of the gospel. More of him, less of me. But many of us in this room walk around thinking, God saved me so that I could be a better person and people could think more and more of me. And then when you fail, you get all confused. God didn't save you for your glory. He saved you for his. God doesn't continue to offer you mercy and forgiveness for your own glory. He offers it to you for his glory. He frees us and forgives us so that we can make much of him. And that's where he calls us to serve him. In the same manner that he served the disciples on that night by doing the lowliest of lowly jobs, washing their feet. The same way he serves them by washing their feet, he serves them dinner. And as he serves them dinner, turn over to Mark chapter 14, if you have a Bible. This is where we're going to finish up today. This is what happens during that Passover meal on the same night that he washed the disciples' feet. 
He sits there with them, and look what he says. And as they were eating, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Just as he served them by washing their feet, he promises that he's about to serve them by laying down his own life for the forgiveness and remission of their sins. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Teach them, serve, and serve them as I served you, even to the point of death, death on the cross. I'm going to finish off by reading the last part of the story that, I, that we took this sermon out of this morning. Okay, and we're getting ready to take communion here in just a minute. We take communion here every week, and, so, and one of my fears about us doing it every week, even though obviously I believe it's the right thing for us to do, is it becomes some sort of like robotic ritual where you guys just come up, you take the bread, you drink of the grape juice, and you don't really think anything different of it. You don't recognize the impact that it's supposed to have and what it's supposed to represent. Okay, I'm going to read this to you. Remember, this is a book for little kids. Okay. And look at, look at what they say here about the Lord's Supper. Then Jesus picked up some bread and broke it, and he gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it, and he poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread. It will break, Jesus told them. This cup of wine is like my blood. It will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break, and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart, and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all of your sins, and you'll be clean on the inside in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember... Jesus said, I've rescued you. Jesus knew it was nearly time for him to leave the world and go back to God. It won't be, I won't be with you long, he said. You are going to be very sad, but God's helper will come. And then you'll be filled up with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You are my friends, and I love you. As we take communion this morning, you eat the bread. Remember, that was God's body, his own son, broken for you so that your sins might be forgiven. As you drink the grape juice, remember that that represents Christ's own blood spilled out for the forgiveness of your sins. And it, it's not something to guilt you. It's something to encourage you to worship him and thank him because he gladly did it for you because of his love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that at this time of year we can sit around and celebrate the fact that you came. But this morning we're reminded of the fact of why you came. 
because of our sin and rebellion. God, I pray that we would just worship you this morning, that we would be thankful for all that you have done. That as we take communion, we will wrestle with our own sin, that we will confess it and repent it and lay it before you. And instead of feeling guilt and shame and condemnation, we will lay it at the foot of the cross and receive the free gift of mercy and forgiveness that you offer. And that we will joyfully take communion worshiping you and thanking you for all that you have done and we will declare with our mouths and our lives that our God is the true God who loves this world and died for their sins. And that as we enter into this Christmas season, we would walk thankfully and joyfully in remembering that you came and what a joyous event that was. God, thank you for all that you've done. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.